Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Naomi Pullen. Naomi is Assistant Professor of Early Modern British History at the University of Warwick in the UK, and we're going to be talking to Naomi about her new book, Female Friends and the Making of Transatlantic Quakerism, 1650 to 1750, just published by Cambridge University Press. Naomi, congratulations on your book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Crawford, and thank you for, for having me here today and let, letting me talk about my book. Well, we're looking forward to doing that. Uh, before we talk about the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, so um, as you said, I'm, I'm an ass- assistant professor in, in early modern British history at the University of Warwick. And I've had, I've had quite a long history um, with Warwick. I completed my undergraduate and postgraduate qualifications there um, and then I moved on um, to do a Leverhulme Early Career Fellowship at um, St John's College um, in Cambridge um, and I moved back to Warwick again in 2018. And does it feel like a homecoming? <laughs> yeah it really does actually um, because very much my, my training um, in history at Warwick was very much in the, the social history of Britain and I, I feel that that's really where my research interests um, lie now and I, it's um, a great place I think to be working and, and teaching and my research itself um, centres on the the gender and religious history of the early modern British Atlantic um, and my research today really has focused on uncovering the experiences and identities of women in Britain and North America. So, yeah, Warwick is a great department for, for being able to explore and, and focus on those things. Great. And, and so many of those themes come out in this book, uh, this book um, don't they, Female Friends in the Making of Transatlantic Quakerism. What's the background to this book, Naomi? So I guess really um, the the book, or the, at least like the makings of the book, began um, when I was a postgraduate student at Warwick, um, and I really I found myself drawn to the early Quakers, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the origins of the movement a bit later. Um, but I was really really struck by how the early Quakers seemed to be um, defying traditional gender conventions because women were able to to preach and act as as ministers and the more I uncovered about the early Quakers I the more I was really amazed to find that women were writing and publishing on on things like the theological equality of the sexes and undertaking independent missionary work um which started to lead me to question really what life was like for for more ordinary Quaker women, um, perhaps women who may have converted to the movement because of um, the fact that their husbands were um, had decided to convert, or what it was like for women whose husbands were 
traveling and spending long times um, undertaking missionary service. So that's really um, was the starting point, really, for my for my PhD at Warwick. So tell us, how did the Quaker movement begin? Who were some of the early leaders? Where was it based? How did it grow? What kind of numbers were involved? Yeah, so um, the the origins of, of Quakerism are a little bit unclear, but um, it, it's largely been attributed um, to um, a man called George Fox, who um, was a shoemaker's apprentice from Leicestershire and um, the movement really evolves out of the very turbulent um, moment in, in British history, um, the, the English Civil Wars and it's in the late 1640s that George Fox starts to s- sort of experience um, a, a, a moment of um, I guess <laughs> spiritual crisis, and he starts to undertake and and move around um, the northern counties of England, trying to um, and trying to sort of create some some kind of um, theology. And what eventually emerges is is um, a belief in the the. Um, what they call um, an inward light and it's this idea that everyone has access to um, the word of God so you don't need any kind of minister or intermediary um, to intervene and anyone is entitled to this spiritual revelation Um, and that includes women and also um, people of, of any kind of social status. So it's, it's quite um, a radical theology. And the, the message of early Quakerism is then spread through a number of very charismatic Quaker leaders. So that includes George Fox, but also people um, like um, the infamous James Naylor. Um, and James Naylor's um, in, an interesting character because he he rather ridiculously rides into Bristol on um on a donkey um with women a, a group of women saying hosanna hosanna and he's um arrested and charged with them um, with blasphemy as you as you might expect um but there are another a, a number of other figures involved including people like um George White and um, a, a, a Quaker that becomes a martyr called James Parnell. Um, and the movement spreads through essentially itinerant missionary service, so, so people travelling around and um, engaging with, with um, a range of, of groups of, of people, and it, it becomes a very, a very rapidly growing religion. Um, it's been estimated that by 1660, um, which is only really about 10 years after the movement um, really fully begins, that there are uh, around 60,000 Quakers in England. Um, so it, it becomes a very, um, a very popular movement. It, it, it's got that sort of early evangelical charisma, really. Um, it's a heavily persecuted movement. Um, so predictably because the Quakers are um, advocating such unusual and, and radical ideas and also undertaking quite dramatic activity 
Quakies. Um, so, for example, many of the early Quakers um, run through the streets naked um, as as a sign of their spiritual purity. Mm-hmm. Um, they they're really um, sort of quite shunned by wider society and they do also want to try and spread their their mission and their their words further abroad as well so um we have a number of of quakers traveling to different parts of europe um to ireland um and to the north american colonies and the the west indies um and then in the 1680s a charter is granted to um a famous uh, uh, to an early quake leader called william penn which um goes on to to become pennsylvania in 1681 and that is really modeled on quaker ideas and and values it's a very tolerant religious community and a large number of Quakers then go over to to North America to settle Um, and I think uh, there's estimates that by around 1775 there are 100,000 Quakers uh, living in North America which by that point is a much larger figure than the number of Quakers who are are living in England uh, at that time which I think had decreased to about 20,000. The names you've mentioned so far, Naomi, would all be the names of men. How important were women in these early years of the growth of the Quaker movement? Yeah, so um, unusually for a movement of this time, women are incredibly um, prominent figures within early Quakerism. Uh, There's one woman in particular called um, Margaret Fell, who goes on to marry the Quaker leader, George Fox. And she's really regarded as as being the mother of the mother of Quakerism. Um, she's a very prominent figure. Um, she writes on, on subjects such as um, the ability of women to, to speak in church. Um, but. Because, as I said, the Quakers advocate an idea of spiritual equality. Um, it does mean that women are also able to undertake um, missionary work. And that's regardless of, of their domestic obligations. So we have women like um, there's a servant called Mary Fisher who um, travels to Turkey to try and convert um a- uh, the the great Turk himself, um, and there's also two women who are who are quite um, famously held in captivity in Malta by um, the Maltese Inquisition uh, called Catherine Evans and Sarah Cheevers who had been trying to travel to Alexandria um, on a on a missionary movement there. So um, anyone who essentially feels a call um, this this sort of overwhelming feeling that they need to to spread um, the Quaker message are able to travel and preach. Um, So so women are quite prominent and quite visible figures of the early movement. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why the movement gets such a bad reputation and why it is so heavily persecuted in those early years, um, because it seems to be be giving... um, undue authority I think to um, to its female 
members. And then that debate about what status and what position women should have within the movement as it starts to evolve and become more established mm-hmm. um, becomes a really central issue for, for Quakers to try and address. So Quakers, in social terms, are quite a revolutionary movement. Uh, almost, I was going to say genderless, that's an exaggeration, but certainly a downplaying of male-female distinctives and, and an opening up of opportunity for, for example, uh, women prophets. But as the Baptist movement and other new religious movements of the period evolve over time, they move from what sociologists might call sect to denominational status and become more conservative as time goes on, don't they? Do we see the same thing happening among the Quakers? So that is one of the the central questions that underpins my book. Um, And it's certainly one that um, scholars of um, the movement in the past have argued. Um, So very much the uh, gender histories of the movement from the 1980s and the 1990s 90s and um, have suggested that once the movement, once Quakerism becomes more established, um, so when it moves from its first to its second and third generations, uh, the roles that are um, available to women are much more limiting and much more conservative. Um, so they would argue that the shift um in 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 the public roles available to women moves from that this kind of idea of them um undertaking um say radical uh, you know undertaking missionary travel or or participating in radical prophecy um to being much more focused around the home and and the the quaker community and one of the objectives um with my book was really um, to show that I don't think the um, the sect um, the, or the decline of women's status associated with sect to church um, is necessarily um, necessarily um, a valid view. As the Quaker movement evolves, there becomes much more of a state, um, a much more of a um, valorization of the household and the importance of the household um, in, in advancing Quaker values and Quaker beliefs. And it therefore gives the mother a very important place within the Quaker movement. And it's, I think it's been estimated um, by, the, um, by the historian Richard, Richard Van that by 1750, 90% of Quakers are the children of Quakers. So the movement is no longer um, really making efforts to convert, to make new converts. The importance is really on ensuring that the the children of current converts are adhering to to Quaker beliefs um, and Quaker Quaker testimonies and values. Your book shows that the idea of the ideal Quaker household is something that's always been policed and monitored, um, especially in that first chapter where you give lots of examples of of Quaker women who are often wives and mothers leaving their families, sometimes for years at a time, to go on missionary expeditions. Who was left in charge of the household uh, and to what extent did the household come under the governance or the care of the, the Quaker disciplinary 
organisation, the meeting system, when these women were away from home? Yeah, so um, it's it's actually a question that I um, I've been trying to answer, and one that um, I I guess I can only infer from some of the sources that have survived. So in in theory, if a Quaker mother um, was undertaking missionary work, then it would be um, accepted that her husband would would take over and and be the the primary carer um, of of the family in her absence, and that and it was expected that husbands and wives were to respect um, one another if they did feel that they had um, this this spiritual calling. And I think of it, it, it's it's hard to tell exactly how this would have worked in practice. I think um, from some of the sources I've looked at, it it's clear um, that that grandparents had a very um, important role in assisting in in childcare. Um, particularly, I think if if a husband is uh, working, he can't he can't necessarily do and do both those roles um there's also i think older siblings would have would have also um uh helped and and supported the family whilst the mother was absent and we also know that when um quaker ministers did feel uh, a calling to undertake um, spiritual work abroad, they would have to um, they would have to go to their local monthly meeting and essentially declare that they had this calling to travel. Um, and in theory, they would then have to return a month later and say whether that calling still existed. And then it would be scrutinised by. Um, by other like levels within the meeting structure, so it would then go up to a quarterly meeting, and they would also um, try and discern whether this calling was genuine, um, and then they would grant a certificate for a minister to undertake travel, and then it would tell other meetings um, that there was an expectation, I think, to to support to support the minister, but also to say that this is an approved um, missionary. Um, and that what they were doing was, was had been support was supported by their community, um, and I think in going through that process, it also meant that meetings then had um, a kind of unofficial role in in assisting the family um, during that absence. So it might be that they had to provide some financial assistance if there was any kind of loss of income as a result of of the travel um or it might be that they they did have to to overlook and and care for for the children of of absent um quakers whilst they were whilst they were gone is one of the paradoxes i think of your book and your book draws this out in a really uh, brilliant way is is the sense or is, is the sense of how what what's initially an incredibly charismatic and almost individualistic movement becomes within a couple of generations very demarcated by a hierarchy of meetings of committees which uh, control in, in some quite surprising ways the details of individuals' lives. Uh, chapter two is about the women's meetings, uh, how they developed as separate committee structures 
uh, and also the different ways in which they interacted with other bodies, but also the, the differences uh, that they had geographically. Uh, you, you talk in that chapter about how some uh, meetings in some locations were, were very focused in marriage, others were interested in household arrangements, or even what women should wear. Can you tell us a little bit about the women's meetings, how they evolved, how they varied over space, and what their purpose was? So the the Quaker women's meetings evolved um, or, or came about really with um, uh, with with the through the influence of George Fox, um, this early Quaker leader, and his and his wife um, Margaret Fell, and she's often attributed um, to having a really key role in in the development of the women's meetings. Um, it's accepted that um, some kind of women's meeting had existed really from the movement's beginnings in the 1650s in London, um, and it had existed essentially as as a means of supporting um, the families of persecuted Quakers, and so they so they would it was essentially a, a, a sort of charitable um, group that met together. I think on a two week basis. But the um, the formal structure of the women's meetings that you're talking about um, evolved in the 1670s. Uh, and I think it really was, um, in George Fox's view, necessary for women to have a space where they could um, discuss matters that were relevant to women um, and to um, to provide a means of supporting the female members of their community. And, I, I, and this is where... Um, the, the, the establishment of the women's meetings is quite a contentious issue. Um, it, and that's both in Quaker history, but also um, in the, the history of early Quakerism. Um, in, in, a, in, in Quaker history itself, um, the, the issue for many early leaders was that this was essentially permitting women to much authority within the church and that it brought up those old debates about whether women should be able to speak um, in in church settings and have any kind of oversight in um, in church business it but in early Quaker um, in early Quaker history especially in histories about Quaker women the um, the meetings of have basically been seen as um, a form of institutionalization for women. Um, it, it's essentially putting, um, constraining their their public experiences by enabling them to do roles that were very much conventional to women, such as like the distribution of charity or um, overseeing domestic matters and. My um, the chapter in my book really aims to reverse that um, that and and show that it, it it is a very unusual structure within um, a religious society and that's because these women's meetings were essentially um, semi-autonomous um, they would um, so in the American colonies, as an example, the men's uh, men and women would meet together and have a meeting of worship together. And then they would essentially pull down the shutters in the middle of the 
the meeting house and the two groups would um would then discuss matters um relevant to one another and now, um, when you say pull down the shutters you mean that literally don't you i do yes yeah. um the, so in the american colonies they had purpose-built meeting houses where they literally had um shutters that would distinct that they could pull in half for the men and women to meet separately um so which i think is so in some ways that idea of equality is literally inbuilt into the architecture of the the quaker meeting house and um, and then my my chapter really then tries to explore and and tease out what how um that meeting system um is transposed into different regional contexts so how it um how it how say the tasks and activities that are undertaken in the women's meeting in Ireland or the women's meetings in England or in the American colonies differ from one another and what types of authority evolve in 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 those those contexts and the, the aim of the chapter was to to pull out and tease out the differences um of the the Quaker women's meetings but i i actually um found that overwhelmingly um, the activities that women's meetings were undertaking on both sides of the Atlantic were actually very similar and that and and that's the one really surprising finding from my study was that um, despite the vast dif- distance that was separating these these groups of Quakers and despite the fact that they had these very different um political and regional and um, religious contexts in which they're operating um the the uh, for what is a very informal um movement this bureaucracy of the meetings is actually quite um remains quite structured and and similar across the Atlantic um the, the there were some differences that i found um, and like you said i found that the quaker meetings in in ireland and also in england i i'd say do scrutinize the the lives of their members um much more so in terms of um undertaking social uh, undertaking visits to see how um quaker houses are decorated and whether they're they're plain and that they adhere to quaker values of plainness or um how how um quakers are dressed and and what and what sorts of things they're wearing and and the the uh, the meetings in in britain are much more likely to legislate against or, or, or sort of set down strict rules about what 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 people should wear or how they should behave. Um, whereas I think in the American colonies it's a much more sort of fluid and mobile structure, and um, the concerns of the the meetings in the Americas is more how to um, is, is trying to regulate the members um, re- regulate who is actually attending their meetings and who is leaving and who is marrying and um, so it, it 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 it's overseeing very similar things but i think there's just more emphasis in in different parts of of britain and the atlantic on on slightly different matters hmm. well obviously in a transatlantic history that covers 1650 to 1750 you're thinking about other questions of governance as well aren't you in the run-up to american independence uh, your, your last chapter is about how Quaker women interact with 
those outside the world of the Friends. How did they deal especially with the War of Independence when the transatlantic seems in some ways to fracture? Yeah, that, that's actually um, a really interesting question. And it's one that's um, surprising because the expectation, I think, is that as um, America um, starts to to separate away from it, its its former former sort of British past, that the the Quakers and the Americas would would be doing the same. And I think the real problem for the um, for the American Quakers is that they um, they can't really support the war for independence, and that's partly because the Quakers are very strongly pacifist um, by this point in the movement's history. Um, so there's a refusal to bear arms, but there's also a refusal to do anything to support the war efforts. So that would um, include like not um, not paying like musters or um, sorry, not 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 pay um, paying taxes towards the war effort or um, being able to, to to be mustered into the armies and things like that. Um, so um, whilst um, and there's a really interesting paradox that whilst Quakers in the American colonies had largely um, lived quite peacefully, particularly in areas like Pennsylvania. Um, They suddenly, with the the War of Independence, they're suddenly becoming um, ostracised and persecuted, as as they had been in the movement's very early years in, in England. And I think that what it it does is actually the war of independence actually reinforces the solidarity of Quakerism as a transatlantic movement. And um, Sarah Crabtree has written a really um, fantastic book called um, Holy Nation. And it's about the idea that um, Quakers start to um, invoke this idea of um, the, the idea that they are this diasporic, persecuted, separate religious community um, in in very similar ways to to um, the, the the Jewish ideas. And so, yeah, so the War of Independence then starts to encourage like British Quakers to correspond with American Quakers and to encourage. And to remain faithful to Quaker beliefs and values, um, and it also has the effect then of, of actually encouraging exchange um, between these groups rather than um, them sort of distancing themselves. So yeah, so it's quite an interesting um, for for the Quaker movement. Well, Naomi, we've taken up a lot of your time today discussing this brilliant new book, Female Friends in the Making of Transatlantic Quakerism. Before we wind up, though, can you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, so um, the my new project is uh, 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 broadly about female incivility in the 17th and 18th centuries, and in some ways it's an outgrowth of um, the third chapter of my book, which um, explores the idea of friendship. Um, and whilst I was writing that chapter, I was really struck um, by the lack of discussion, I think, about um, negative aspects of female friendship and female social bonding and I think that that's partly an overhang of of, um, of traditional gender histories of, of female 
um, friendship and female alliance, which tend to want to see women's relationships in very positive and supportive terms. So um, my new project is is basically trying to explore the tensions within ideas about civility and politeness. Um, and I am using um, this as a way of understanding how how women actually really do experience um so sociability and how it it has this kind of darker side to it so 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 i'm moving um looking at, at different ways in which women might respond to incivility so whether that's through um say micro aggressions like um i don't know like refusing to uh, go on a social visit or um, write a letter to like more dramatic examples of violence or um, insult. Hmm. Fascinating. That sounds like a great project. For now, I'm going to say thank you for writing this book, Female Friends and the Making of Transatlantic Quakerism, 1650 to 1750, just published by Cambridge. And thanks, Naomi, for coming on to the show to talk about it. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.